Manner of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 52, May 2022. How to do accents. A conversation with Edda Sharp and Jan Hayden-Rolls. Hello again, Paul Meyer here. First, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from the International Dialects of English Archive, Idea, and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. Told me that I was on stage when I was two or three years old, but I can't remember definitely. <laughs> yeah, and I was in a radio and to announce some um, title. I don't know when I was very young, I think four or five years. Definitely, I couldn't remember. If you guessed the Middle East, well done. If you narrowed it down to Iran, well done indeed. It was Ideas Iran 15, contributed this year by Phyllis Cohen. Thank you, Phyllis, and for providing excellent scholarly commentary on this Farsi speaker. The subject was born in Mashhad, went to university in Tehran, and moved to Toronto, Canada in her 40s. To listen to the whole sample, go to dialectsarchive.com, choose the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar, then drill down to the Middle East, then Iran. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? Uh, I'm very much into Lord of the Rings, which might sound a little bit nerdy, but it's true. <laughs> actually, um, whenever my semester would finish, I would actually go through an entire nine-hour-long marathon of Lord of the Rings. And when The Hobbit came out, I was extremely excited, and I was actually the first person to go in and watch it. Get the answer next time. My guests this month are Edda Sharp and Jan Hayden-Rolls, authors of How to Do Accents. They're leading figures in the voice, speech, and dialect world. Jan was recently the acting and dialect coach on Belfast, the multiple award-winning Kenneth Branagh film. Edda is currently the coach for the English National Opera revival of My Fair Lady. So welcome, both of you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us, Paul. I've been enjoying browsing your excellent book again. So let's start with My Fair Lady, based on the 1913 Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw, or as the Americans say, George Bernard Shaw. George Bernard Shaw. With the character of Henry Higgins, loosely based on phonetician's Henry Sweet, Alexander Melville Bell, father of Alexander Graham, and others. It's the quintessential dialect play. Everyone knows that on a bet, Professor Higgins set out to change Eliza Doolittle from a cockney flower girl into a lady. This is I think the first major revival of the play in a long time, 21 years perhaps, it ran in New York, suspended in 2020 with the COVID pandemic and set to open this month. Yes, that's right, the London Coliseum. And it's on tour, I think. I think the Broadway production, Mm -hmm. which Big Hit is now touring the States. And I I wasn't involved in that one. I've only been brought into it now that it's over in the UK. So I think I got the soft option there when it mm. comes to dialect coaching, because the company are an English or British company, I should say, uh, um, working at the Opera House, whereas the Broadway company was a mixed company, from what I understand. It's the same Higgins, uh, British Higgins. But I've also worked on it a number of times, both as the musical and as the play. Yes. When, uh, of course, when I was head of voice at the Shaw Festival Theatre. Um, so it's a very popular, of course, one play and musical for them to do from time to time. Because they have the name Shaw attached. Well, because it's the... one of its most popular. <laughs> you know, the Shaw Festival wants to cover the back catalogue as much as possible of George Bernard Shaw. And 
Well, what dialect coach in the world hasn't visited <laughs> My Fair Lady and Pygmalion multiple times? At least oh. twice, I think, in my yeah. career, if not yes. three times. Yeah, yes. I've, I've even played Higgins a couple of times. Oh, have totally you? Of course you have. Yeah, of course yeah. you have. Anyway, I was interested in, in how the story is being told these days uh, and, and what's different, if anything, from a dialect coaching point of view. That is a conversation that is had. A conversation is had these days that perhaps didn't used to be had. There are more decisions to be made between the various parties involved, whether it's who the cast is, for example, who the audience is, that what's the expectations of the audience coming mm-hmm. to it? What's the relationship that you're making with the audience? What do you want the audience? How are you asking the audience to respond to these characters? And as a coach, you know, that covers all these. It, it's so not straightforward. Oh, there's this accent and there's that accent. But it really often opens up all these other things, doesn't it? That are yes. about how we hear sound whose side are we on are we being Mm -hmm. asked to take sides all that kind of stuff i mean as it happens and then there's nasty nasty old higgins who's beating up on a poor defenseless flower girl and just because of the way she sounds I, i think it's a story that we can all relate to and certainly in our work I don't know, I'm often faced with, I know Jan is, and I'm sure you are as well, Paul, with requests from people to change their accent. All the time. And that's the journey that Eliza is on, of course, that Mm -hmm. um, in order to get on, she has to be able to change her accent and she finds a way of doing it. And her, I find her character really compelling and determined and she sees that opportunity, she grabs it with both hands and makes the most of it. And of course, then the story takes her to a point where she's reflecting on what she's done to herself. What has she lost and what has she gained? She's not part of any community anymore. Right. So of course it, it brings up all that. Like, like me, I'm stranded right. between England and America. <laughs> Where are you from? I get asked on both sides of the Atlantic now. So, <laughs> so they're, they're playing this one pretty traditional in terms of accents. They want to play it the way it was designed in, in the first place, as it were, in terms of the sounds. But of course, they will not be doing Victorian accents. We will be probably the accents, I would say, are more akin, certainly in the Cockney terms, but probably to 1950s and in fact both accents are probably closer to a 1950s just before the great shifts started to happen in in both the upper class and the cockney accents i'd say it's it's more centered there which is what modern ears nowadays we hear that as very old-fashioned and sort of an old we do we do yeah we think of that as a some sort of bygone days of how this accent used to sound wouldn't it be interesting to do Eliza Doolittle as a contemporary oh, yeah. London accent. Yeah. Like, like she was chatting like that. You get me, though, fam, yeah? But like, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that just be a whole, a whole different take on it? Surely somebody's done that in some production in the world. Yeah. It's also quite interesting, isn't it, about how her, not just the accent, how the accent's written in the play, but the voice that she has is, ow! Yes, she's yes. described um, as hasn't this kind of vocal screeching sort of mm-hmm. yeah. coarse voice, not just the accent. Uh, an interesting sort of thing for the character to, or the actor to think about in terms of the character. How do you portray that? How do you portray 
a vocal quality and the accent? And does one then start taking over as being, you know, less attractive than the other? It's mentioned a lot, isn't it, in the play? Oh. Is, that, is that right? Yeah. Mentioned a lot. And it's really in that first scene that he finds it utterly offensive, the noises that she's making. And getting the sound of, of that is really important, probably more important than the accent, actually, that we're responding mm. to the tone and that shift that she makes into the um, upper... Well, of course, the actor has to learn how to do that shift. And that's what's so incredibly challenging. And the actress that we have in the British production is from neither of those accent bases. Mm-hmm. She has the same journey as as an American actor would have. You have plenty to do then. <laughs> oh, plenty to do because she's from Leeds, uh-huh. so she's having to learn to do an old Cockney, and she's trying having to learn to do posh. Yeah, so uh, just for our, our our world audience, Leeds is Yorkshire, and so it's more Downton Abbey style, right? Like the downstairs people in Downton Abbey. Yeah, it seemed to me that the two projects that we were going to talk about today, The My Fair Lady and The Belfast, mm. um, you know, they're, they're linked perhaps uh, only tenuously, perhaps by um, by the person of George Bernard Shaw, an Irishman, but also by the fact that they're both historical dialects. And I was just going to engage you both on historical dialects. And you've already gone to that place, Edda, and, um, and told me that you've placed the accent in the 1950s rather than going back to the Victorian accent, the accent of the first two decades, and using the accents of Sir Herbert Beerbohm Tree and Mrs. Patrick Campbell. Yes, although, Paul, I have offered, I've got, you must have seen this on on YouTube and it's freely available, is that little clip of Mrs. Patrick Campbell just doing her elocution. It's a little video of her. I'm looking Um, for it now. The company often finds the posh, certainly in Britain, it's the posh accents or the upper-class accents, I should say, that casts generally find more challenging than the Cockney accents. Because there's also so many varieties of posh. For English people, we know that there are varieties of, you know, there's a sort of the military type, and then there's the sort of landed gentry, you know, and then royalty. So there's a whole whole array of posh accents to sort of call upon, and then it's sort of which one is the, is appropriate. And which one do we like? Yeah, yeah. Which yeah, one do we sure. find? I don't know. We, I think, in the perhaps in this country, uh, in in the UK, perhaps we've got people have more attitudes towards them. Perhaps mm. you know that, that they may feel these. This is the which it is the voice of power, and that might have a particular effect on them. So, yes. um, and they find it often difficult to then then to inhabit it authentically. Of course, it's a play and it's a musical and it's sort of a dialed up version of everything. But at the same time. The characters need to believe in their own sound. And that I think I think we find more challenging, both Jan and myself, when we're coaching people and training younger actors as well to learn how to do these older or more upper class accents yeah, without yeah. sending them up, without sort of stepping outside them and kind of doing a demonstration of them, but actually owning them and inhabiting yeah, exactly. them. Editorialising, without editorialising. That's a, a lovely word, absolutely. Yeah. It just occurred to me that, uh, you know, I'm very, very interested and and very engaged in the OP, the original pronunciation of Shakespeare movement. And it occurred to me that getting an actor to do Hamlet in OP, in OP, Mm. would be easier in a sense, because it's we're free from the associations that we might be, that we might have with the 19... 10, 1920, 1930, even 1950 or 60 
arpy sound, right? Yes, I think that's really very, very interesting. I've never thought of that, actually. Did you, Jan? Never thought? No. No. It does take away, of course, any yeah. sense of we're placing it here or we're placing it yeah. there. We make the, yeah, we just had a big kerfuffle about a production, ridiculous kerfuffle, may I just say. Um, I don't know if you did you hear about it, John? It, Northern Broadsides are doing a production of a Shakespeare play, and Northern Broadsides is a company that are, as the name would suggest, set in the north of England. And all their productions are always done with Northern actors in their native Northern accents. But there's yeah. really a backlash, I don't know, com customer complaints, shall we put it that way, that Shakespeare <laughs> was Northern accents. I mean, in this day and age, can you believe yeah. it? Yeah. Someone complaining about the Northern accents yeah. in that company, because they're not authentic to Shakespeare, that's absolutely, totally ridiculous. It's rather marvellous that apparently the Elizabethan audience were free of, of, I mean, there was no prestige accent at the time, you know, Sir Walter Raleigh and brought his Devonshire accent to the, to the court and didn't modify it and, and had a perfectly wonderful career without, without having to modify his accent. So maybe in Shakespeare's time, the people were freer of those prestige Oh, I'm sure, I'm accents. sure. Yeah, and maybe it went back to the whole quality of the voice, you know, it's whether the voice told the story so maybe it's the quality of the voice that sometimes people tune into more than an accent i'm going to play for you a recording of to be or not to be by sir herbert and beerbo yes, tree yes. which i'm sure you've both heard but yes. our audiences probably yes. haven't so this this is the actor who first played henry higgins in 1916 i think is that right oh how fantastic so it, it's it's not a bad recording for 1906, which is when he actually wow. made, made this recording. Here we go. You can hear you that. Can you hear that? That yes. is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of struggles and by opposing enemies. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, for the Shakespeare, the style of the acting, of course, for, for, mm. for nothing else, but the accent's so interesting. What did you hear in that that's that's unlike uh, the RP that I was trained in at Rose Bruford in, 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 the, in the 60s? What did you hear there that was different from the RP that perhaps we've all inherited? There you have the um, to be or not to be. More the not, than, yes. Yeah, yes. the not to be. Which is more, more like today's American in a sense. Yeah, not, yes, it in, is. Instead yeah. of not. not to be. Yeah. And yes. so is the, um, whether it is nobler, the yes. nobler. Yeah. Yeah. None, none of the no, no, nobler, but That's all the no, no, no nobler. And th thought, and so thought. Yes, yeah. much, much loose, much more open thought, Val. Yeah. The quality of them absolutely is is not the same. So that no, thought no. vowel, the lot vowel, the goat vowel, yeah. all of those have shifted. So if we were going to do a historically accurate uh, Pygmalion or my, my Fair Lady, we'd have to go mm. to slings and arrows instead of slings and arrows. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And, he, and he also yes. says to take arms instead of to take arms, yes. almost yeah. like a Boston accent to take arms yeah. against. Yeah, so true. Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, you can you can hear, you know, some of those sort of 1920s, 1930s American 
movies, you can hear the accent within there. Yeah, the old film stars, you can hear that within this recording. I've got got another clip, which I was going to play later, but this side by side with it might be fine. Eleanor Roosevelt, her accent is much closer to what we just heard be a bone tree. So let's listen to, to a little bit of Eleanor Roosevelt. It's the United Nations speech that she gave in 1948. I'm very glad to be able to take part in this celebration in St. Louis on Human Rights Day. Ever since the Declaration of Human Rights, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, was passed in Paris in 1948 on December the 10th, we have fostered the observance of this day, not only in the United States, but throughout the world. Isn't that fascinating? That is... (laughs) <laughs> that what? is just the juiciest of things. What are you going to pick out of that? Uh, um, can I, Jan? I, I, yeah, I, go for it. I'm bouncing on my seat here. Um, the nurse file, the observed. Yeah. Yeah. That, Slightly lip-rounded. Uh, yes, the lip-rounded and where it sits on the boundaries between having once been rotic or about to be, you know, that's, it's yeah. not an R. Is it an R or yeah. is it not an R? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to R or not to R, that is the question. Yeah. And then I, did she say um, forstered? She did, forstered. Yes, so she's got the lock cloth split. Yes, she has. Um, yes, 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 I thought she did. Oh, my goodness, what a great sound. I hadn't... That's heard. a great but, sound. Um, but then you just get the little, you know, thing that you do associate with American with is, is a slightly a T going to a very soft D. City. Which city? Yeah, city. I think play that without telling them who it was to almost any English-speaking audience. Yeah, wouldn't they think it's British English? When she yeah. starts, it sounds exactly like the Queen. You could play the first couple of seconds, and and, and you'd immediately, you definitely with the pitch and the style, think, oh, this is mm-hmm. Queen Elizabeth. She was just passed. I think the Universal, yeah. the Declaration yeah. of Human Rights was passed in in St. Louis. I mean, that's the, that's the way Brits did. They often refer to that scene in St. St. Louis. St. Louis. St. Louis, yeah. You can see history. The story is written of the, of, of yes. the travel from Britain to the United States yes. to the setting up to the, the class-based system along the East, all down the East Coast, which remained longer than it did anywhere else in the, in the, in the States. And the fact that we had more crossover in those, that sort of, yeah, that's, it's, it's, inter- it's fascinating that you can hear that that is the same community, both sides mm-hmm. of the pond. And we're, and we're getting on for 150, 160 years of recorded human speech. So how fascinating that we can actually hear these changes in the way language behaves. Uh, you know, we had to rely on historical linguists like David Crystal to, to resurrect OP. But in, in the centuries, decades and centuries to come, we will have a, a living record of the speech style and how it evolves, how it changes, how it morphs from one thing into another. Mm. Definitely. In our own language. I mean, goodness knows, there's so much else. And yeah. I've seen yeah. you've had discussions about other languages as well, haven't you, Paul? And yes. of course, ours has gone through this particular phase of having one accent picked out as being fixed almost in time, because I, I, I'm often struck by if that was 1900. Well, the recording of Mrs. Patrick Campbell was 1906, I think. 
Beerbaum Tree was the 1960s oh, Beerbaum Tree, one. I'm I, sorry. I couldn't find the Mrs. Patrick Campbell one that no, you referenced. Can you find there. it? You're looking yes. at my screen right now. Can... Yes, if you go back to that one, it's the second one down, the weird ghostly image. 1929. Yeah, two minutes. Let's play that. Mrs. Patrick Campbell on the Art of Acting and Beautiful Speech, 1929. speech, vocal control, vocal attack, vocal color, and their fundamental and supreme value in the art of acting. who speaks the holy words, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, leads his congregation to their knees. But the preacher who says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, does not impress his congregation in quite the same way. <laughs> I'm glad we found that. And it does go back to the vocal quality again. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. quite, it's quite interesting. Plummy is what we would call it. Plummy, yeah. right. It's very Plummy. plummy. And the little vibrato thing that she's got in it. Yes. Oh, Let, let's awesome. uh, depress the larynx as much, you know, squash, push the larynx down as much as possible, almost going into Margaret Thatcher, you know, that sort of pushing down of the larynx and yes. lifting yes. up the throat and yeah. not this tight sort of ringing sound, you know, because Margaret Thatcher changed her voice, didn't she, of course, and that was about vocal quality. Riffing on that one, was there a dialect coach on the King's speech with Colin Firth? And uh, Yes, there was. That was Neil Swain. Neil work Swain better. worked with Colin. You know, that's an interesting job, isn't it? To teach somebody yes. to have a, a stutter, an emotional... Yes. Yes, I've got another wonderful podcast about uh, voice and speech disorders with Joanna yeah. Kasdan. And we, yes, Joanna Kasdan, she, yeah. she talked about voice disorders yeah. in the movies. The pale cast of thought, slings and arrows, take arms. Yes. Jan, congratulations on Belfast or Belfast. How do we pronounce that city these days? Belfast. Yeah, Belfast. Um, what did your work on the film involve? I know that you were the acting coaches or an acting coach as well as a dialect coach. Yes. So I was the acting coach for the wee boy, Jude. So there were two Judes, Jude Hill and Judy Dench. So I worked with the young boy. It was his first film. And of course he was chosen because he's, you know, authentic and fresh and, you know, all the things that probably Kenneth Branagh was as a, as a child, you know, curious. He's a, he's, and he's a Belfast lad then, is he? He is. He's just from outside Belfast. Yeah. Um, which would be, I guess, the equivalent of someone from Essex playing someone from London. You know, yes. so it's not in the city of Belfast. And then I, yes, I also coached the other youngsters. There were quite a few other young actors and we had quite a few child actors from round and about. We filmed in Ascot in England, which again is just outside London. And we had quite a lot of local children there and they had to be from Belfast and they had to be in the um, school having their lessons and doing their times table. So I had a group of about 30 children doing their times table and teaching mm -hmm. them, and they were all mm -hmm. 
very enthusiastic. Uh, yeah, and then some of the other um, characters. There's a, a, a young actress called Lara. She was from she's from Dublin, so I had to teach her a Belfast accent. And Judy Dench, obviously, has you know in Philomena, she performed with you know she portrayed that character with a Southern yes. Irish accent. I think her mum was from the south of Ireland, so she was from Dublin. Um, so she's really got that in her ear very firmly. I, so I, I first um, heard Judy Dench do Irish in um, 84 Charing Cross Road. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, playing Anthony Hopkins' yeah. wife. Yeah. Yes, yes. So for her, it was a big sort of leap from changing the tune from a southern Irish accent, um, breathy accent down in the south. You know, you get a lot of, you know, Royce and Sit and... Yes, you know, a lot, do of, it, a lot you know. of languid diction and splashy releases. Splashy, yes, splashy releases, you know, with the peat mm. under your feet. But in mm. Belfast, you know, it's a wee bit more tater. The tongue is working in a very tight and muscular, you know, making very firm contact with the um, back of the teeth and your way, you know, the gum ridge there. And the back of the tongue is, is engaged for a much tighter R sound. Yes. Getting... The tune, the rhythm of it was quite important. And also the shape of it, because you have to close your mouth away a bit now to get that wee tater signed. Whereas, you know, in Dublin, you don't have to do that. You know, it's a much softer kind of sound. So I love hearing you demonstrate that. It's great. I know. Isn't it wonderful, Paul? I'm just sat here in awe. Your job is to find a way in for the actor, find a hook. When we were having a chat, you know, when I was in Judy Dench's garden having champagne lunch um, when I first met her, which is my favourite story of all time. And I was saying, you know, have you ever done a Belfast um, Northern Ireland accent before? And she said, no, she hadn't. And then after a while she said, oh, yes, but I had an uncle who used to come and um, stay with us. And this uncle was only a couple of years older than her. And um, she then sort of recited this whole little ditty that her uncle used to say. And she did it in this perfect Belfast accent and I was like oh well that's really good so then you know it was sort of I can't I can't remember what it was you know exactly now but it's about five or six lines so then I was able to kind of use all the different words that she was able to say and the tune that she was able to to copy that you know she was copying yeah. from her from her relative and just sort of apply it across the text you know I say well when you have this word that's like the word that your uncle used to say when he was saying this. <laughs> and that's sort of how we, you know, found the hook for her because she had him so firmly in her sort of mind's eye and in her kind of ear. So every time that she started sort of veering towards her, her mother, I used to go, oh, no, okay, you need to get your, you need to get your uncle back in the picture now. Mm. Um, and we would just sort of, you know, she so you would just do that. Code. Bring, back, bring back the uncle. Yeah. Bring back, yeah. Back. Bring back the uncle. You know? <laughs> And she would use that as her springboard to kind of get into the accent. Let me play yeah, a little clip from it. This is the uh, this is the scene um, you raised them. These boys are suffering. I don't think we've got till Easter. I don't think you and me have got till Easter either. I'll come home. Is ours are getting killed or in the corner. We'll, we'll be careful. 
can't be with them 24 hours a day. You can't take away their childhood either. You know, whatever happens, what you've done with these two, it's phenomenal. What are you talking about? You raised them. Not me. Not us. You. Thank you. We'll see what happens by Easter. I'll take the bins out, make a couple, get these ones to bed. That's so touching. Yeah. Oh, what a joy. That was such a joy of a job. I'm sure it was. Um, but it has that great wee feature, the, you know, the out, take the bins out, I that out sound. Yeah, that's one of the more that. difficult um, mm. signature sounds that I have to coach North American actors. The audience expectations was one of the things you thought would be a good thing to talk about. And speaking of audience expectations, I've read that some critics suggested that this film needed subtitles, but <laughs> but then Harry well, Potter yeah. was translated into American English. So I'm yeah. going to go harumph. Here, I'm going to harumph yeah. it up. How much do we pander to an audience's expectation, I guess, is the question. Well, I think it probably starts as well from how much of a director's expectation. Maybe it starts with that first because i'm sure eddie you've had this as well where someone says okay they want a particular accent and then you play them the resources and you give them the recordings and you say okay so this is what i'm thinking of and then the director says oh no 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 i don't want that kind of london accent or whatever yeah. region it might be I, I want the sort of slightly more diluted one yeah. and you think oh so you want the diluted one that's that doesn't really exist. exist. Um, <laughs> so you want the diluted one that's sort of been presented in maybe in other movies. You know, that's often where it starts. And then it can also start with the actor who says, oh, yes, but I'm not going to actually do it like that, though, am I? I'm not <laughs> actually going to sound like that. And you go, well, yes, because that is the Newcastle accent or, again, whatever it might be. And they go, uh, and sometimes maybe it's a fear of actually jumping in and really making a big commitment to sounds that perhaps are difficult, like out, you know, in right. Belfast there. It, it, that can also put a spanner in the works. But in terms of an audience, I think when we shot Belfast, Ken Kenneth Branner was really very, very careful Part of my job was to do a voice warm-up and an articulation warm-up, particularly with the younger, inexperienced actors, to make sure that they're, you know, that they were sort of muscular and, you know, ready. It is, after all, a movie. It is art. It's not, yes. real, it's not real life. It's, a... it's not real life. And I think because he was worried that, you know, people would say, oh, it's a strong accent. You know, sometimes an audience might expect an accent because they've heard of a version of it that might not actually be the accent that often happens. You know, if you asked anybody across your listeners what they thought a London accent was, you'd probably have a hundred different versions yes. of what people yeah. think it actually is. Yeah. So sometimes you do have to kind of settle on something. And as long as everybody is doing the same. As long as we're exactly. all inhabiting the same world. 
the same yeah. world and and the, and the same time. It's so hard, though, isn't it, Jan? Because you know this film is speak, telling somebody's true story, and it's the story not just of a man but of a of a culture and a community. community. They deserve to be honoured with their own sound. Yeah. On the flip side of that, you want you it's being shown to an entire world, which is yeah. fabulous that it's got the reception and it's being sh- seen and heard by so many. And so that's a, a really difficult balance to, to strike. Mm-hmm. And I, there, I don't know, you know, whether we've got answers to it. I think Jan's absolutely right. You know, and, and as you were both just saying, it's that artist, it's an artistic creation. Mm-hmm. It's, a pro- it's a product, uh, an artistic product. That's a team that begins with the writer and the director and the vision of what this piece is. And and inevitably, if you go one way, you're going to upset one set coming out to the audience. You know, someone somewhere is not going to be happy. I think it's difficult as well when, if it's an accent that people aren't familiar with. I think most people think they know a London accent. Most people think they know an English accent or an upper class accent. But if you are doing a Belfast accent, which doesn't have much representation, really, really or if it does, it it has a representation in a very particular light, that can be a very tricky thing to to negotiate because you you do want to represent it and you do want the story. Ultimately, it's the story that has to be told and it's a it's the relationships and it's the characters and we need to hear that so the ethics of the job are are these in my opinion that it's our it's our duty and our privilege as dialect coaches or as as film and theater artists to allow an audience into a particular world and, and know it and knowing something is is halfway towards loving something. So we're peacemakers. We're we're mm. cultural um, ambassadors in a sense to open up a world that we may never visit, and yet to give us the sense yeah. that these are real people too. And therefore, we press will be slightly less inclined to go to war with the people that we think we know, even if it's only <laughs> through a movie. That's very true. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Particularly, you know, if it's an accent that you don't really know an audience can very quickly decide whether they like it or not based on the music of it because everybody's accent is you know the first thing that we do when we're babies is make you know musical you know we're making you know musical melody and rather than particularly lots of you know intricate and complex vowel sounds and so the music of a person's accent can really strike a chord it's like somebody going okay I love jazz and you're playing me rock and that's just not within my kind of musical repertoire so that can be really hard that sort of fits into the audience expectations as well not not just of what they think the accent is when I started my career as a dialect coach and phonetician at whatever I am I used to concentrate uh, just on the segmental things, the the, the individual vowels and consonants. And mm. but over the years, I've um, I've come to think that at least fifty percent of the job of of inhabiting, credibly inhabiting another person's speech style is is the tune, the rhythm, and the tone. And as you've both said, it's it's an awfully difficult, challenging task to do that, isn't it? But then Moravian and Ferris, it's an old research that was done into the impact of the different elements of communication and it's been it's been torn apart over the years but fundamentally it goes on along the lines of there are three tools with which we communicate one is words the other is 
voice tone and within that bracket they can is basically everything that's prosody anything that's music intonation rhythm all of that and then the third is the way the body moves the body language that supports that and and how the three things work together that that was a I think back in the 60s was research into which one of these has the most powerful influence as we're speaking to others and the voice tonality one comes out at 38%, right? So that's just a standard training model. But what's much more interesting, I think, from our perspective is that, as you were saying, Paul, most of what our work as dialect coaches, sort of people expect it to focus on, and certainly in our training it does, is in that part that is the words, like, how do I say this word? How do I say that word? Mm-hmm. How do I do that vowel and that consonant? Whereas that's only a third of, in, in, in terms of the actor, in terms of their act of communication, that's only a portion of what the communication is. You, you then, like you say, you have to know, those are just the words. What happens when you add to that the voice tone, the music, the very specific little movements, and the body itself, which we know as coaches, that includes your mouth. So how you might say things in one sentence or one expression of feeling may use a different muscular amount of muscle or or force than in another. For example, you know, how you use your tongue, how you use your lips is connected to the whole body. So there is an element at which our work is about the whole actor and getting these blooming vowels and consonants right. And probably that moment where we've all had it in coaching, where it's all going really, really well. And then suddenly the big emotional speech comes up. And the music of the new accent that they're, you know, learning, that record gets changed and they flip over onto the B side, which is their own music, their Mm. own rhythm, Um, because that's what the actor knows to use to convey that emotion. So that's, I'm sure your listeners have all watched a film where they go, oh, God, yeah, you know, it's it's sort of all, they're in the world of the speaker. And then suddenly they go, oh, what's happened there? And suddenly it's because the actor just for a moment has switched, has flipped over the record and gone onto their own music and their own emotional expression. They're taken out of the world of the accent that they're supposed to be in and they're flipped into somewhere else. And you don't always know why, but guaranteed it will be because of the music. That's the take that they've chosen. I mean, take they'll go with, because in that take, that actor will look and sound more truthful and the eyes will contain the lights of someone who means what they're saying they'll really be connected from a dialect perspective you're like please don't use that take that's the worst (laughs) take i mean there's 20 takes to choose from why are you going with that one oh oh, we'll 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 fix it in post if uh, if (laughs) we'll fix it in post but we can see on screen and we can hear in the you know you can see that that part of the body, talking about how, how the body is conveying it, has switched in and they've really connected and it's taken them right yeah. back, like Jan said, right back yeah. to their own sounds, tune and p- potentially one or two vowels that have gone straight back to themselves yes. because they're feeling it so strongly. I just mm. heard some wonderful Folkestone seagulls yeah. coming by your window. Sorry about <laughs> seagulls. There's nothing I can do about seagulls. <laughs> <laughs> Let's close with a discussion that grows out of everything we've talked about, uh, which is that, and and I know you feel this way because I read it in your book, that societal values are embedded in a dialect. Who we are, 
how we sound is something to do with the values we hold as a society, the traditional virtues of that society, mm-hmm. what's held to be polite. Give us a, a little take on, on your favorite stories about societal values embedded in dialect. My family are Londoners. My, my brothers all have London accents. My mum has a London accent. I was born in Hampshire, uh, Sussex, and then Hampshire, and then I've sort of you know moved to London. So I've probably got more Me of a London too. accent than, than anything else. I'm, I'm Hampshire born and bred. So, you know, people always say whenever I'm coaching a London accent, oh, yeah, well, it's a bit aggressive, isn't it? And it's a bit lazy. And I just want to tear my hair out because there's something about you know people and I, I know that you had an episode on the on the glottal there's something about you know when when you're missing out a sounding like um, water or better off or I've got to go you're missing out a you know a t sound or whatever it might be that people perceive that as being aggressive or they perceive that as being lazy and actually for me it takes more effort energy to put in a glottal than it does to put in the sound. It's not just because I've missed out a sound. It's not that I'm being lazy. It's got another different kind of energy to it. And it's always interesting when I'm coaching Americans to do a glottal, they do better because they don't put in the personality, the vibrancy, the energy, the kind of front-footedness of being a Londoner in its place. So yes, I've missed out a sound, but in its place is this beautiful kind of little kicking, kind of little it's, wink of an eye. It is. I was going to say it's kind of cheeky, Jan, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. cheeky. It's a little wink of an eye is what is what I always get yeah. them to do. Paul um, asking about the culture, you know, you go, well, yeah, because you think of that London, that London culture of being having fun, teasing, front foot energy not backing off. It's an outdoor accent or competing against uh-huh. machines in the rag trade in the East End. Uh, you know, that's where the old Cockney rhyming slang comes from. So yeah. it's uh, an accent that needs other people to engage and to respond. And yeah. it provokes that, evokes that. It wants you to get involved. Do you know what I mean? So it's like even you yeah. say, do you know what I mean? Do you, do you get what, you know, because you want that response. Yeah. So, of course, to other people who have got a more gentle or softer or more kind of, you know, slower rhythm. Like in Hampshire. You know, so, of course, it's going to be perceived in a in a different way. But that's not to say that it is. It mm. is that, you know. Um, which, of course, I'm, I guess you're having, we're going full circle, you're, you're having in uh, My Fair Lady. Certainly in the post-1880s sort of 1880s onwards, as the you know, RP was kind of developing, being schooled, everyone being schooled in it, was, of course, all those values and beliefs in not demonstrating feeling physically, like removing that body language part of communication almost, so that you get yes because the, there's that scene isn't it dover dover move your you know where she's sort of like on yeah, move your blooming ours. exactly that song is is the lyrics are saying what a thrilling <laughs> absolutely thrilling learner mm. and low have written this song which is all about the fact that these upper class people are having the most exciting time possible but their culture their values are that we don't show that physically or vocally and there she is showing it physically and vocally and you see those busting out of her corset almost (laughs) yeah you hear it collide um but the flip side means that i mean i've talked about this in rehearsal with them that the upper class 
have the benefit of education. So their values, how do I express myself clearly if I can't pull a face or do a tone of voice or um, use my body? Well, you've got to use your language. You have to make much, much more specific choices of words. So every word is very, you've got a broader vocabulary, lucky you with your education. And a tendency to use really specific notes within the range and tone within the range. So the possibility of going all the way, you know, and speaking like that. So you know when you're being told off and you know when you were, you know, so using the vertical in terms of tunes and tone and this use of language. Of course, for George Bernard Shaw, was off writing so much of his work is written for those characters who were doing that and showing contrasts between worlds colliding, between the worlds of the educated and the privileged versus the uneducated. Good luck, Edda, as you go into opening in just a few weeks. And Jan, uh, I'm sure you've got fabulous projects coming up and good luck with them. <laughs> and it's been a privilege to talk to you both today. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you so for having much. us. It's been a privilege to be part of it. Thank you. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guests, Edda Sharp and Jan Hayden-Rolls. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter, at Dialect Paul. If you have a show coming up that needs a dialect, just remember that I publish manuals teaching you 27 different accents and dialects, all available individually, or in larger collections, in hard copy or as ebooks, sound files included in CD form or as streaming audio. Just visit paulmeyer.com for all the details. And of course, Edda and Jan's How to Do Accents is a must for any actor's library. Just search the web for How to Do Accents, the actor's toolkit. All the audio clips I used on today's show were taken from YouTube under the copyright doctrine of fair use. The clip from Belfast, written, directed and produced by Kenneth Branagh, is copyright 2021 TKBC. My guest next month is Kavan Manwaring, a novelist, poet, author of the Bardic Handbook and an authority on the Celtic Bardic tradition. Join me next time on In a Manner of Speaking.